Welcome to the Tokenomics DAO podcast, where we explore everything tokenomics related, ranging from deep dives on the tokenomics of the newest protocol to demystifying the nuance of building a successful token ecosystem. Our goal is to bring awareness to the importance of tokenomics and the crucial role it plays in defining the success of a protocol, helping make tokenomics relevant for everyone, builders and investors alike. I'm your host, Flo, joined by my co-hosts, Jason and or Lovis. Welcome to the podcast. Today's episode is all about legal. We're going to talk about the legal side of tokenomics together with Eric, who's a full-time crypto lawyer uh, or legal expert. And yeah, we're going to go through legal needs of DAOs. We're going to talk about uh, like the most important things that DAOs face, which is counterparties, taxation, but and then and then we're really going to go into the the token side, which will be full-on securities. What makes tokens a security? How is that evaluated? And um, yeah, hope you enjoy this conversation with Eric. Awesome, Eric. This has been a long time in the making. I really appreciate you finding the time coming on. This is something I think a lot of people in tokenomic space are super interested um, about is the legal side of this. Can you just quickly tell us like how you got into this? How, how do you become someone who knows about crypto in on the legal side? Just maybe as an intro. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. Well, it's great to finally connect. It, it has been a long, uh, a long time in the making. Um, sure. So I'm a lawyer and uh, how do you end up here? Uh, by, by working in it, right? By being a contributor and, well, there's a couple of paths, that's my path. So I uh, began to contribute in a DAO, in Bankless DAO, where I was one of the original founders of the Legal Guild. And it, that just led to a series of other spaces like to practice and then you discover people have legal needs and DAOs have legal needs. And then there's contracting with the real world and bit by bit, both collaboratively and then sort of uh, solo, you know, solving these problems. Uh, in some cases, they're not that complicated. In some cases, it's very uh, ambiguous and obscure. Um, and, uh, and as you go, it just feeds itself. So you become like oh, yeah. more known, more in demand because everybody says, oh, that guy solved my problem, right? So the, and, and so today I practice exclusively law um, in crypto both for companies that are decentralizing or for DAOs uh, that need some legal advice. Okay. So <clears throat> I've been part of Bankless DAO for a while too. And like, and I think like this whole DAO space, that's what fascinates me the most in general and crypto at the moment. So maybe we can start with that, like with these legal needs that you described. What are some of these typical legal needs that we have that, that you come across with, with these DAOs? Yeah, so the most common one, the most early, the earliest voiced one was uh, wanting to transact with the meat space, right? So having a counterparty. Mm. So whether you wanted to have a booth at ETH Denver, or you wanted to uh, make merchandise, right? You want to make merchandise that says your DAO on it, and you want to sell it in your DAO, like uh, the same as you would jerseys for like your Frisbee team or something. Um, you know, and then they realize they need a counterparty or they need a credit card. And in most DAOs, or at least a year ago, when they were starting out, people would front the money, right, themselves. And then they'd usually get a reimbursement from, you know, the DAO or something. And I mean, that was fine when, you know, the fronting was $400 or $500. But when the fronting is $25,000, all of a sudden there's nobody around to do it or people become uncomfortable it's interesting that people become, they're fine with a small transaction. They become uncomfortable. They don't question the legality of something if it's a hundred dollars, but you know, if it's a yeah. $8,000 transaction, all of a sudden they're worried about all sorts of things, like whether their income, like they're going to be have a tax event, whether like they, so everybody backs off and all of a sudden they're looking for a solution. Like how can I um, interact with the, uh, meat space really the IRL and with the counterparty is that if you can't find one that's willing right so I guess I'll start right there and I'll just say from a legal perspective 
there's no legal requirement on the other side of an agreement that there be a company or something, right? As long as you trust that person. So this is all about trust. Yeah. So if a counterparty is willing to do business with the DAO, they're willing. Most businesses are not because they don't know, you know, they'll have like an internal risk tolerance rule that says we don't deal with anything unless it's a registered company uh, or, you know, there's an identifiable person who can be held accountable, reliable. And so they just won't deal with you. And for the most part, for example, a credit card company, you know, and so, um, but the truth is, if you're willing, if you're able to find a willing partner, and some DAOs have found willing partners, you know, who are, uh, if you have a willing partner and you trust them, uh, you could transact, but, but it's, you know, in small increments. It's never like you just wake up and you say, oh, you know what, we want to have billboards and we want to have all this normal stuff you would have at a conference, for example, and then discover you can only get two of the five things. Yeah. because you can't find a counterparty who's willing to work with you. So it's less about, it's often framed not as panic, but like, oh my God, I could be in trouble. It's less about that. And it's more about the inability to actually execute like in the real world. Like when you want to spread your wings, if you wanted to get an, uh, an office storefront on a main street, you know, that said tokenomics DAO and have people come in and walk in and sit and listen, and, uh, it would be difficult for most real estate companies to be management willing to rent you that space if you yeah. were a DAO. But if you found one who was willing uh, to do it without a contract, and don't forget there's all the liability of slipping and falling in there and all that. But if you found a willing partner, uh, you could be done. It's just very difficult. So that's the first thing is that the law doesn't actually require it. I, it's not legal advice, but you know, it's about willing partners coming to an agreement, first of all. Then once there's an agreement, you know, more or less, you know, an agreement, a contract doesn't have to be in writing ever. It could just be orally. We do them every day. Um, and then there has to be some type of consideration that passes between you. And then there's a contract. Um, now, enforcement of the contract is something else, right? So if the contract's not enforceable, some would say, well, it's not a contract at all because why have it? And this is the part where you could have a willing party but if they just took your money and didn't rent you the space, you, you couldn't get it back, right? You'd have no recourse. So that, that's the, the biggest one, the actual biggest one. It's not people looking for tax advice. It's actually this. The next body, biggest yeah. one is everybody running around wondering, they're uncertain about the taxation, uh, tax treatment of various composable transactions uh, like in DeFi. For the most part, there's good tax guidance for basic transactions almost everywhere, right? So if you just bought Bitcoin, held it, sold it, almost everybody knows how to report that. Like it's not complicated. Even your regular bookkeeper or accountant will know that and they're willing to do it. This is another big one. Finding a bookkeeper or an accountant that's willing to do crypto accounting yeah. is quite a challenge. Even at the business level, I work with big companies who have millions of dollars of transactions and it's very difficult to find an accountant or who's willing to say what the rule is. And then if you find one, they're busy, they can't take on new clients. And so everybody sure, else yeah. is kind of waiting, but circling back to most people, um, as painful and annoying as it is, uh, but they do understand like what I would call the most basic tra ta taxable events and basic transactions in crypto. And it doesn't matter if you're in the US or Canada or Europe, it's the guidance is there. Where it becomes complicated and ambiguous is, you know, in some of the um, composable transactions like in DeFi. And, uh, and there the rules are different everywhere because in some places a cryptocurrency is a commodity, in some places it's, it's not. And, and, and so the treatment's gonna be different all over the place. And um, so there it becomes a little ambiguous. What I've told uh, anybody who I deal with is just be consistent, right? Because the chances are that the person interpreting your tax return has any knowledge about crypto is very low. 
So what they'll be looking for is something that they understand, which is consistency. So if you always say that you took the average price at noon, make sure you took it at noon, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. when you're rebuilding, right? <laughs> because they'll just see that. They'll see it's consistent. There's no reason to think that it's sneaky because one was in the morning, one was in the evening. You know, like if you're, you know, you don't have the exact numbers and you have to rebuild something. So just always be consistent. Consistency yeah. will usually, even in the regular tax uh, review, consistency oh, yeah. is usually more important than the actual substance, right? Because uh, they just want to make sure that they're always getting a fair amount that they're due. And if it's ambiguous, they just look to generally uh, that it's consistent. And if it's consistent, it would be fair. So that's yeah. an element yeah. of that. Um, so that would be the next one, the tax treatment. And then of course, the third one is everybody wants to launch a token and then they just always, they want to know whether it's a security specifically in the United States. Apparently nobody seems to mind if it's a security elsewhere, although it can be because there's security laws everywhere. Um, and they tend to be focused uh, on the US uh, uh, application and the regulations. And part of that is because it, it is an aggressive enforcement or it can be. And um, more so than say some other countries. It doesn't mean other countries don't do it, um, but it would be quite egregious, you know, for these smaller countries to make big worldwide actions. Um, uh, usually something that's, you know, really based in fraud and wrongdoing. Yeah. I like the US is by far the biggest market, right? Like the well, it is, market yeah. participants in crypto currently are yeah. US based yeah. for citizens or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so, yeah, that, that would be the third one and, uh, yeah. and in that order. But if you didn't participate in a DAO ever, uh, you would think that it, the security one is number one, but it, it's yeah. really not. The, yeah. it, it's actually how to transact yeah. with the real world is the first one. Yeah. Uh, um, then also how, like how to get a bank account mm -hmm. if you can. Um, people do that. Like, I mean, you can just start a company i've talked to a few right they just start a company somewhere and then that sort of yeah. is a spin-off entity of that and yeah yeah because of the uh ubo the ultimate beneficial owner let's talk about banking for a second so in banking um there are very i won't say strict but they're very uh, well understood rules about due diligence requirements on people who open bank accounts and the source of funds and it's entirely at the discretion of the banker so even if you have everything in order they can say no uh it has to do with the appetite set by the board of directors and you know the shareholders about whether it's uh, an area they want to play in or not basically um so that's the first thing uh in order to have an ultimate beneficial owner you usually need to have like a company Right, they, the bank wants a counterparty. So if there's wrongdoing, they can they get sued. They can pass it on to somebody. Right, and yeah. so one way um, one way DAOs are getting bank accounts is by setting up, like you said, a small entity somewhere, whether it's for profit or not for profit. Doesn't really. There's a few little differences there, but you just set up something very small. It has a very singular purpose, you know, uh, for example, uh, let's say you just wanted to sponsor booths at conferences or you just wanted to make merchandise. So it only does that, like it doesn't do, you know, like all forms of business because if it does all forms of business, what you have is just the regular company that's masquerading as a DAO, right? So yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the, the, so, so, so the, it, it tends to be like a very narrow scope and it's just to solve this problem, right? This one problem they're facing and all DAOs will be facing a different problem because they're not all doing, they're not all selling t-shirts or all having booths yeah, at yeah. a conference. But those are two examples that are familiar to me because I've seen them a few times. And um, so that, that's one way. Another way is to find a willing counterparty who's willing to just take the trade, right? And then do the work for you. So it's like contracting with a service provider, 
So you could, you know, send the service provider, you know, the funds plus some cut, and then they just do all the buying for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, by proxy. Um, that's another way. And I would say in the early days, that was way more common. Earlier days, we're still in the early days. So, um, but those are like uh, two, two main ways. And, and, and then there's other, and then it just depends what kind of DAO you have, like what its purpose and objects are, because if it's a for-profit, whether it has a foundation association behind it, whether it's a pure DAO, those will all vary a little bit, you know, for certain, yeah. if you have a big foundation with billion dollars in it, the foundation will take care of all that, you know? So it just kind of depends what your, what your, you know, the, the output of the DAO is, right? And it's ultimate aim and we'll kind of decide what to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, many people think they have to go to very far away uh, corners of the earth to do this. And the truth is, in, in, in most cases, I don't know individual circumstances, but in most cases, it's almost always better to do business where you live. Um, <laughs> it's always cheaper. It's always yeah. easier. You, you might have a level of compliance. It's interesting. People say, well, I don't want to do that because they don't want to have compliance, right? Like they'll say, I don't want to pay a 15% uh, sales tax on everything or something and have to record that. Yeah. The truth is you just find a bookkeeper that you pay them a hundred dollars a month or 200 and they just do it for you. They take care. Yeah. They take care of it. So it's transparent anyway, but the likelihood of, uh, I'll just say that it raises no eyebrows to, I call it the plain sight solution. I've had dozens of clients who recoil at the idea that you would put this little tiny entity that does very little, uh, and you would put it in plain sight and get yeah. like a normal bank account from like a name that you recognize. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I tell them all the time, it's it's way easier because you're in 100% compliance with everything. And, and, and you're in your home territory, there's no uh, unknowns. Like, you know, you have to trust somebody in a faraway land that they're not gonna give away your secret or, or like, it, it's usually better to do it right where you live. Yeah. Um, but it de depends on the, again, the scope of what it is you're trying to do. But the yeah, plain sight yeah. solution, I think, should always be considered. And it's also a lot easier to demonstrate on inquiry. Like, let's say your tax authority came knocking and said, hey, I'm curious what you guys are doing. You can just show it all. And they yeah. go, oh, okay, it, it works. And they, they mind their Seems own like business. business yeah. 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 If it's in a faraway land and it's obscured, uh, they keep asking more questions. Yeah. And, if you, you get know, this pound so, thing that always kind of sounds suspicious, right? Yeah. And certain, yeah. And of course, certain offices in certain countries, like whether it's Germany or Canada, or US, there's always people work there for decades, right? So they always have, it's a personal bias. Like, yeah. you know, you could just be at the desk. If you're in Panama and you land on the desk of the guy or a girl, woman that hates Panama, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're on the top of the pile yeah sorry about that i just had to yeah yeah okay um and and so yeah it's just something to think about so um the next thing is uh liability so it's a common topic you hear this all the time dow wrappers liability uh you could be liable uh, you could all be liable as partners. I never met you. I'm one of 15,000 people, but I could be liable and so on. And I would Person, say there's a yeah. lot of, th there's a lot of that out there. Um, I don't want to say that it's uh, never or not happened, but to my awareness, it's not actually happened yet. DAOs are not that new. Um, there, it depends what you're doing for sure. And it depends uh, the same way just in, 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 in the real space, what is it, what it is that you're up to and, and how are people participating? So every circumstance will be different. But one thing that you'll often read is it'll say uh, the advantage to being incorporated somehow is to sue and be sued. And I often tell clients, I said, I've never heard uh, people who ask, I say, I've never heard it as an advantage to be sued, right? Um, the one thing it does do, so it comes like as a double-edged sword, right? There's two sides to this. One, you're able to pursue other people 
but also you're now a lightning rod, right? They don't have to file like difficult explanations to prove. So if you look at the BZX um, lawsuit launched in California, statement of claim, it's full of all sorts of, I would say difficult to prove out claims because they're not even sure themselves. So they're just throwing a bunch of words out there. Somehow this is a partnership. Yeah. I'm not sure how, but the judge is not going to figure it out for you. You have to prove it's a tall mountain to climb. Yeah. But if you were just registered somewhere, they would just say, I'm suing them. Because they're exactly, yeah. I picked that company. So, so it works right. both ways. Like the, the, there's two sides to this. One, there's a lightning rod to attract trouble. Uh, the the flip side is that you could pursue someone if you needed to. It's inevitable that frictions will happen and people will be disappointed and want to founders will leave angry and want to sue the other founder and yeah. all that kind of stuff. That's normal. It happens in the real world. It'll happen in DAOs. But at least at the moment the DAO space um, is one of more of collaboration, I would say, than the, than the um, commercial space. Mm -hmm. And I've already dealt with two or three incidents where a disgruntled early contributor was leaving and, you know, they're not friends anymore yeah. and they wanted to have their tokens that were going to invest in the future. But so there's a big dispute and you know, I tell uh, everyone, you know, you're better off to just, uh, you know, painful as it may be, like, do you want, do you still want to work with so-and-so? No. So, well, <laughs> you'll be working with them for the next three years yeah. if they're suing you. So, yeah. you know, like, uh, you'll be better off just, you know, pay them or give them something, make them feel, and let them go. And, yeah. uh, and for the most part, people are really amenable to that because the flip side is, is painful, annoying. Uh, it's taxing and it's always lurking. And so it's true in the real world, except in this mature suing, like a commercial space, um, you know, it's like the first go-to, you go to first base, you sue somebody. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and, and once you get people who are experts at it, they're not really negotiators. Years ago, I took a, a negotiation course at Harvard, the certificate, and it was really interesting. They said only 7% of all lawyers that they collect data had ever taken a single course on negotiation and i thought it was really ironic because people rely on lawyers to to negotiate yeah and for the most part they just dig in and they they call it you know they call it um vigorously you know defending the rights of somebody which yeah. which is a code for digging in and refusing to do anything exactly and that, making a step yeah. towards the other side yeah 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 and yeah. so um uh, so, you know, collaboration, settling, coming to an agreement that nobody likes, but it brings, brings the problem to an end is, I think, a little more prevalent in the DAO space for now, which is mm -hmm. kind of helpful. Yeah. So on the, I guess, like, obviously, I'd be most interested in the token side as the tokenomics DAO is, and it, even though you say like that's not the highest priority in, in these issues within DAOs but, or the legal needs within DAOs. But I'd say it's certainly one that there is a lot of trouble behind, right? And that's because of securities. So, yeah. and in the US, it's kind of that way. If you have a certain type of token or you, you program certain type of mechanisms into your token, then it needs to be registered as a security. So why is that bad? Like. Why don't you just go and register it as a security? I've, you know, what I've understood, it costs quite a lot of money and is a, uh, a tough process to go through. So I can understand why they would avoid it, right? Um, but like, yeah, why is it bad? And like, what makes something a security? Maybe we can go through this how we test thing together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're right. So the distinction between the first legal things and the security is the risk, right? The risk is much higher on the security side as opposed to, you know, getting a credit card or a bank account, and solving these operational problems because the counterparty is the government, right? With, you know, theoretically endless resources, hmm. and so which can just 
and end your endeavor because it can bankrupt you. Just just responding. You never have to get to your day in court because you may not make it because it's so expensive. Um, so the risk is very high. And there's a couple of things, I guess, that jump out at me. So you are right. So the cost of joining the club is very expensive, right? Like to file a registration, you know, to make the applications, then you have to wait for approval. If you look this morning, um, Avanti Bank, Custodia now, uh, just sued the US government because they've been waiting for their bank charter, crypto bank. They've been waiting for a bank charter for, I don't know, I feel like I saw the CEO on TV in the first week of the pandemic, right? Because they're not, they're not issuing a decision. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't take two and a half years to make, up your, to make up your mind on a one page form, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so the, 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 there's a bunch of frictions and it's very expensive to register as a security, right? Um, and if you don't have the kind of money, they're gonna force you to become a security because you have to go out and raise it, right? Yeah. So uh, it's kind of like a little bit of a, a catch-22. There's a couple of things about a security I, I, I wanna share, which is um, people describe a security as a thing and, and it's not, it's an opinion, right? Security is a made up legal fiction and it's an opinion and, and over the last hundred years or so, uh, wherever you may live, um, different courts have taken each like infinite number of scenarios and decided whether something is, in their opinion, also a security or not. And so if something has already verbatim, fact for fact, been you know, declared a security uh, by a court, um, then it is. So you can be comfortable knowing that it's uh, it, what you're doing is probably security and should probably be registering because it's already been decided once in 1930, once in 1950, once in 1970, once in 2005. You're not going to be the exception. Um, but if no decision has ever been rendered on something that you're doing and it doesn't fit squarely into the exact same fact pattern, then it may or may not be a security right? on the opinion of a court of competent jurisdiction. So there's a spectrum. At one end, something is never a security. And at the other end, something is always a security. And in the middle, there's gonna be this what people say it's ambiguous because there's some unknown, right? And this comes up in crypto quite a lot. And again, it kind of depends. Some crypto events are, are definitely more like securities than others. They're much more clean cut. Like I never, I didn't have a product at all. I made promises that I would build a product, right? It just looks like a regular company, right? I have an idea. I've never built anything, I have no employees, but I want you to give me your money. And if you give me your money, then I promise to give you a share of the future profits. And first we'll hire a good team, then we'll develop a good product, then we'll go out and we'll get more investors. And so that, that, that's like a regular business. And that sequence of events is, is already in existence, but not all crypto uh, activity looks like that, right? And so, um, some crypto activity is just like a utility voting token, right? It only, it has like, it may have a monetary value, but it's a membership. You have kind of a not-for-profit going on. Like it could be traded, but you know, the idea that it usually goes down, I always find quite interesting that, <laughs> you know, for the most part, most crypto is not really going up and uh, um, it can go up periodically you know, and yeah. separate from, from like the native blockchains, right? And um, every one of those elements, like proving that there's an expectation of profit. If you take, if you took, for example, 8,000 cryptocurrencies and showed that only four of them went up and nobody ever promised that yours would go up, you know, you have to prove out every one of those statements. Like you had an expectation of profit from the work of others and so on. And so I'm not saying that it's hard, impossible, but there is definitely um, areas where 
um, and a lot of the, 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 the legal Twitter and on the Substack articles that are written not by lawyers and in the Coindesk articles where they just skip something and say, oh, you may be liable for this without mentioning that it would have to be proven by evidence in a court of law, which is a huge, <laughs> you know, yeah. about the partnership thing, or that, you know, you could have a security, but without mentioning what it would take to bring that opinion over the line, to say it was a security. What I often tell, and sorry, go ahead. Yeah, like, it's like, maybe let's maybe let's like step back and go and go yeah. through this real quick right there's this howie test and this howie test is like um i think it's from like the 1930s or something like quite old and it has these criterias with which you like you basically answer and you mentioned a few of these right maybe we can get, quickly go through that um before we go to that go to that next step sure so um, I'll start by saying that uh, I practice law in Canada and it's a US test. We do use the same test here. It's not called the Howie test, but not all our decisions are the same. The principles are similar and the principles are gonna be similar in Australia and elsewhere. Um, any legal test, not just the Howie test, eventually, uh, usually a Supreme Court to settle any confusion comes up with legal tests and they're usually procedural, step one, step two, step three. And then they'll say, and they're conditional. If the first thing exists then the second thing must exist. And once all these things are present, then the test is met or the burden is not, you know, met. And the Howey test is a test. So that's what it means. Um, and the Howey test um, has a number of parts to it. Um, and, you know, and, for the most part around crypto, everything focuses around the uh, expectation of profit and uh, derived exclusively or solely from the efforts of others. So the way I often explain this, and I think the first time you and I met, I talked about the snake oil salesman who's standing yeah. on the back of a wagon as things situated in time, like at the time, the Great Depression or whatever, and, you know, it, when you're wondering what you're working on and what you should be saying and not saying is just picture uh, somebody in the back of a wagon selling cough syrup, you know, and claiming that if you invest in his cough syrup that, you know, you would have eternal life. Right? So you're making all these promises. They're standing on the back of the wagon, waving the cough syrup around, claiming this elixir has all these benefits. So uh, creating expectation uh, either of profit or eternal life, doesn't really matter, right? It's this great expectation being created by the things that are being said, that are things that are being marketed, by the, and, and, and it's not exclusively that, but for the most part. And then the next thing is a, a exclusively by the work of others, which means like you don't have to do anything, just give me your money, like part with your money, don't worry, I'll call you back when it's time for you to get rich, right? And so, um, and what goes on in DAOs to a certain extent, you have different types of members, you have contributors, you know, who could be, be tough to say they're relying on the effort of others when they're contributing their time. Uh, it is gray area. Um, but this goes back to my earlier example, which is just that if it looks like a regular business and the only thing in common is it's just digital, then you have a regular business. But if it, you know, if you have the managerial decisions being made by one person. So this is where the decentralization, uh, uh, which is not part of the Howey test, but the decentralization of, of, of the unity of command, if you will, right, of the decision-making um, is presumed, is, is, is like underneath the Howey test. And so um, there's a number of factors at work that make it, for some circumstances, grayer than others. And um, maybe I'll pause then, I'll let you ask the question. Yeah, it's, I mean, the interesting thing that I, I definitely see with that, like everybody sort of puts into their token these governance rights, right? And yeah. governance, from my perspective, is like, yeah, like most people are not really interested in governance. Most people don't care how the Uniswap protocol 
is really developed, right? They're not going to go and vote on every proposal. And I think you can even see that in a lot of protocols that it's not really the case. But what I figured is the reason why all of these use it is to make sure that they're kind of safeguarding here to not fall through this Howey test, right? Or pass it. I don't know what, or I don't know which one would classify you as being a security, right? But I think a lot of them, they would have some really interesting ideas for their tokenomics, but they're sort of limited by this uh, risk of being a security. So they come up, oh, let's just slap some governance on top. Let's do some staking or stuff like that. Well, that, 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 that may be, there may be some grain of truth to that like now, but uh, I would find it doubtful that three years ago, people were starting out and saying, you know what, I'm worried my token's gonna be security. So I'm gonna give it governance rights. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think that when they started out as governance tokens or tokens that are governance plus have some value, um, there was no influence of the Howey test. Yeah. It was this purely designed that way. And it, I think the securities question comes later, right? Once we see, because the space is just like real life. There's some real fraud go, that goes on just like in real life. Um, there is real snake oil salesmen, right? There's rug pulls, there's raises, there's, and in no different uh, than in real life that happens every day. And so um, what happens is, is once these adverse situations happen, you know, whether it's a, a fake token raise and then a rug pull and somebody runs, um, and then that gets reported to authorities and they say, oh, wow, incidentally, this looks like a security, right? This looks like the exact same thing that I investigated last week, but it was stock. Yeah. And so I think that this is where the traction comes from originally. Like, I don't think that the regulators uh, woke up one morning and just said, you know what? I think all of crypto is a security. I think that they receive complaints, right? From people who have been wronged, fooled, victims of fraud. And when they look at it, some of them look identical to something that occurs in real life that they already manage or they already correct or monitor or enforce against. And, and so that, that's where that traction comes from. I think also on the larger scale, when you look at the, the, the mandates to sort of pub protect the public, um, which, it looks obscure, but uh, it's definitely there. You know, it may not always seem that way, but under like, it's something they consider, which is to protect the public. And um, if you look at the biggest cases, certainly the US ones, um, to date at least, they've actually proved to be true, right? So like when the regulators chose to pick on Tether, uh, nonstop and relentlessly and did not relent, it turned out that uh, they were correct. Yeah, yeah. So it turned out that uh, that there was in fact not a dollar backing every single token, which they denied for years. Yeah. So if you look at uh, other actions that they've done, so and if you if you look, link that with the public, uh, you know, the, the, the public good mission, say, well, it's important that people don't claim there's a dollar when there isn't one because it's misleading you. And so I can't speak for every action that they've, enforcement action that's gone on for the last couple of years, but certainly the ones that I read, the ones that they publish are almost exclusively ones where in the end they were actually correct, right? And so, um, it's not that they're going after every single person or DAO or token that's out there. It's that um, to a certain extent, they receive a complaint or they see something that doesn't make sense. Uh, they have a mandate to take some action on it, right? And then what happens is they run out of steam or gas. When it falls squarely in their uh, jurisdiction, they do something about it. And when it falls unsquarely out of their jurisdiction, so the Shastain case is interesting in OpenSea. I don't know if you saw that there was no mention of security in any of it. They char he's charged with wire fraud and uh, money laundering for front running token sales. 
Oh, okay. But it had nothing so, to do with security. No, well, like, but 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 if you front run and sell stocks, you're not money laundering. You're violating securities laws because you're insider trading. And oh, okay. And so, you know, to me, and it's it's hotly debated. You know, I had t- Twitter conversations with colleagues who don't share my view. And I said, hey, look, it's very clear. If, if they thought for a second that they could. Uh, pin a securities violation on on this person they would have but there's not a single sentence in the entire thing about front running uh, token sales with yeah. insider information instead they charge them with wire fraud because you know it has to go through the wire and so they charge them with ordinary like justice criminal fraud Only because ordinary, they could, gar- right? yeah. ordinary garden variety not a single mention of security so in my view, and only my view, uh, that signals that there is either an unwillingness and uncertainty even on their part, because they don't want to enter into things that lose, right? They don't want to charge him with uh, front-running securities and then have a judge say, no, that's not true, because then they're wrong, and then that judgment stands, right? So, um yeah, th- th- those are kind of comments, not legal advice, but comments, you know, don't front run because you will yep. be charged with fraud. Uh, and it, and it's, but it's interesting because we're talking about securities. I said, well, this just happened, I don't know, this week or last week. And uh, there's not a mention of, of any securities violation, mm-hmm. despite the fact that he's, you know, in, in his case, he was, he was selecting which NFTs to put on OpenSea. So he knew you know, when the big drop was happening and yeah. he would simply front run it and, you know, make money. And um, that. Yeah. yeah, so maybe I'll pause there and. Um... Yeah, I mean, okay. So not everything is that, but still, I think many when designing their tokenomics are really concerned about that, right? So they'd be like, yeah. And I, I see uh, tok- tokenomics in a way, and we're, we're kind of like going through that um, on our own journey as this process of you've got a problem or you've got a whole bunch of problems in, in like what you're trying to build, your community you're trying to build, the product you're trying to build, whatever. And you're going to try to solve these problems with certain incentives. So you might go, oh, um, we, want, uh, we want all these random people that work in our DAO, we want them to really focus on this long-term thinking with our client. We want to make sure that the client um, is, is like served well, um, is happy at the end, and we'll even get a reference at the end. So how, how do we instill that? What kind of mechanisms can we use to, to sort of like build it up? And then you come up with some mechanisms perhaps, right? You'd say like, okay, for every client project that you do, because they're all strangers, right? We don't have any employment contracts between them. They just are in this DAO. So what can we do? Maybe we can, for every project that they do, we can, we can, they'll have to lock up a certain amount of money. And that then can be, um, I don't know, taken away from them if they, if they, if they don't do that. So I think, I think basically of this whole tokenomic space, as you have all these different little mechanism that you can use to solve all these problems. So, and I'd be super interested in like seeing kind of like, is there like a way to think through the legality or maybe the securityness of these different mechanisms? Because eventually a lot of these mechanisms you can turn into a token, right? You could, that, that they could become tokens that become certain mechanisms within the tokens. But then I'd want to know, okay, like, don't touch that. Like, don't do something yeah. like dividends, but like maybe call it like that and then you'll be fine or do this and then you'll be fine. I think that's what a lot of people in, in designing this are, are like really like struggling with. And, and maybe like, how can you pair these to still be okay? You know, that maybe we can talk about that a little bit, um, your experience in and what you've yeah. seen. Yeah. So, um, there's a couple interesting things that have come to mind. I've worked with a uh, real estate, fractionalized real estate DAO, mm. and they were uh, doing, and, and it's like a multi-level, multi-stage, because you know there's a property, and then there's yeah. like, I'll call it a sub-DAO, and then there, there's a bunch of moving pieces, and with the money flow, and it was really kind of interesting to 
and they showed it to me. Um, the first question I asked them, I said, uh, I said, oh, th this transfer of money here is gonna be income, right? Doesn't matter where they live, you're gonna buy a building for 500,000, it's gonna come in and it's gonna be income. So that's gonna be taxable. So you're gonna need more money to come in. Um, and then, you know, this conversation and it just seemed, in that case, seemed really obvious. <laughs> I just said, well, you can just make it a loan, right? <laughs> you just make it a loan. And then when the property is sold, the loan gets paid back, you know, eventually. And that avoids the, the issue of getting taxed when the money comes in. So it's always going to be circumstantial because there's more, in that case, there's more than one type of fractionalized real estate DAO out there. They're all doing different models. A uh, loan may not be the answer for the other one, but in this particular one, it, you know, the design of the token flow and all that kind of stuff uh, and the, well, the tokenomics itself. Um, one of the, you know, friction points was how do you, how do you not make a massively taxable event occur? And the answer was just, just make a loan and code it, like code it into the code that it's a loan, that it's reversible, you know, and then it goes back and there's a trigger that happens and that there's some kind of yield that's paid on it. And um, the other example that uh, came to mind when you were talking about that is for DAOs not to rush into the token. So if you, cause it's, like everything in law is always about what are your personal facts? What is your DAO's particular situation? Everything from how the governance works to what the output actually is will matter. And that's why the answer for one will not be the answer for the other. And in DAOs that don't have a token yet, they have an advantage that they can figure out what it is they actually need to incentivize without, when the token just exists, Everybody says, let's use the token for this. Let's use the token for that. Let's use the token, yeah. right? There's not a really lot of thought in the design and planning that goes along because you just have a token. And if you operate your DAO, like on the uh, crawl, walk, run principle, where, you know, at first you only have 12 people or 20 people and you agree that you will get a token, but there's going to be a six month period and we want to come up to 200 people or 300 and then you will discover through your arrangements what needs to be incentivized what is the real product that you're putting out what's the demand for it and therefore what characteristics your token needs and i would just say that if you wake up out of bed and you say i want my token to have like three different rights on it without really thinking about it uh you chances are you're going to sort of over, you know, over qualify what your token needed to be. And anytime there's unused functions of something, you know, it's like leaving, uh, you know, um, wire open wiring in the back closet, right? Like there's uh, power running through it. There's no caps on it and uh, nobody's paying attention. And so those things can come up to bite you later. Um, because nobody, because you created functionality that was not necessary and there wasn't used and nobody's thinking about it. The next thing you know, it could be that functionality itself that makes it a security. So um, cautious design is the other thing that came to mind um, when you were talking about, uh, you know, uh, governance token and just designing the tokenomics of how the flywheel is gonna work. Yeah, yeah. Increasingly, I'm a big fan of like reputation. Um, it's coming up a lot. Me too. And I feel like reputation and tokenomics uh, eventually will have a place together. Right now, they're kind of separate concepts. But I feel that like um, because reputation can be counted in tokens, also that uh, there could be a, there, where, where there's so many ways people are under development to reward contributors yeah. um, that uh, are not direct, I'll say cash compensation or cash substitute compensation. Um, and that those developing ways are looking more and more interesting about how some of them are, are less and less on that spectrum. They move away from the security, you know? Mm -hmm. So, 
Um, like if you can't sell your reputation, but your reputation influences your ability to transact, um, it can influence like how much benefit you can acquire without itself being a security. So it's kind of interesting to me. Um, you know, like if like some DAOs have two tokens, yeah. you can have like a reputation token. Right now, some DAOs have a governance token and then a, an operational token of some type. Yeah. Um, there are other DAOs that I've been talking with who actually have a reputation token, you know, um, mm -hmm. in addition to the, that has no governance rights. And then it has a, uh, an operational token that has governance rights. And so they're building a little, little bit of a flywheel and it's kind of interesting. So there's still a lot of um, experimentation going on because we're really, really still early. I mean, we're going to hear this for the next five years. Be, yeah. <laughs> I saw, I was in New York a couple of weeks ago uh, presenting at a thing called Crypto Nexus and they had a slide and they showed the internet adoption, you know, the iPhone when the internet and all that basically on a one for one basis on the exact same, you know, they have the exact same yeah, um, yeah. chart. Uh, we're 12 years away from the iPhone in crypto. That's incredible. Which yeah. is the first smartphone, you know, because <laughs> we didn't have that. I'm old enough to know that we didn't have a smartphone. We just had a flip phone to dial. And, uh, um, too, yeah. <laughs> and, and that it took like, I still remember the first person that ever showed me when I was sailing on a boat. They're like, yeah, look, we're visiting. And it was okay, like the fun. coolest thing. We're like, wow. And then all the apps did was they poured beer, you know, they yeah. made cups of beer and like, there was like nothing really, but, um, um, true, but it's all normal now. Facebook didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, we're, we're still really, really early in the experimentation phase of a lot. And, I would just say that um, everybody needs to get some kind of legal advice at some point. Yeah. Uh, people call, call me every week. Uh, about 30% of the time, I give them a couple of free nuggets and I tell them they don't actually need a lawyer because yeah. they're worried about something that's not real. Um, and then uh, the other time is they've already built an entire metaverse and already sold land they've already done all of that and never yeah. talked to a lawyer before yeah that's the opposite and, end yeah 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 <laughs> and so uh, you're like okay and then as you start asking questions like where do you live you know <laughs> and, and so um and in some cases because they didn't expect to be successful oh, and there's okay, some lessons yeah. there right so they just thought yeah we're gonna do this we're gonna do this and their things taken off and yeah. now they're, I don't want to say they're frightened, but they're nervous yeah. because, you know, they've never had a million dollars in a wallet before. Yeah. <laughs> and most yeah, people yeah. never yeah. will. And then they're like, whoa, maybe we should talk to a lawyer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because they were through, unbeknownst to them, they become very successful. And it turns out everything they're doing is actually like in the security realm, you know? And, so and is it often too late then? Like, what do these guys do? I, I would say it's never too late. Mm -hmm. um, it's never too late uh, it varies by country there's always some type of voluntary disclosure right you're always able to come forward most countries have some type of amnesty I won't claim that the US does but usually if you've not paid your taxes you haven't administratively complied with yeah. some administrative rule there's usually a uh, amnesty channel of some type to come forward uh, and then make it right. And, yeah. and, and unless they want to make you the example, they usually don't you know, give you penalties either. And, um, but uh, one thing I do want to say, cause I don't know what time it is. It's coming to my well, yeah, mind. We've got like a couple of more minutes, but yeah. Yeah. It's just, I wanted to sneak in something here, which is about, which is uh, that you can be, run a foul securities laws, even though you don't have a security. Because making false claims, right? Like, you know, pumping something mm -hmm. that's not real and, and claiming it's a security, right? Yeah. So it uh, also runs a foul security law. So, you know, 
what it ends, there's that. And then there's the piece of advice I give to every single project, which is I say, have really good disclosure. Yeah. So like, if because there's a difference between a criminal offense and an administrative offense. Mm-hmm. And an administrative offense is, is usually a fine, right? Yeah. And, and if you've made money, you can usually pay the fine. Yeah. And then the amount of the fine is usually based on how much money you make. Okay. Um, yeah. But a criminal, enough, yeah. uh, a, a criminal uh, complaint against you is, is really serious. And um, failing to disclose, right, is, a, is, 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 is not good. It's fraud. Yeah. And so you could fail to re- register I'm not telling people not to register. You can fail to register. It's an administrative offense in most places. I don't know about every country, uh, but failing to disclose is fraud, right? Because you're basically lying about something. And so one thing to just have really good disclosure, even if it's just a link on your website, populate it with all the risks, you know, have true disclosure. If, if, if somebody controls 80% of all the tokens, you know, and there's no hope, make sure you write it. Yeah. Even if it's hard to find, I would say, don't make it hard to find, but because um, if ever your legitimate project in the future runs the files and they clarify the rules and they look, go retroactively and they look around. So a lot of this is about administrative law and how it's practiced and yeah. how it's enforced. If they go backwards in time and they look and they say, okay, you had disclosure, no problem. You just failed to register or file a paper with us. So, you know, you'll have to pay us $100,000. You know, maybe it's more, maybe it's less. But if they go back in time and they say, you both committed a fraud and you failed to register, this is where you end up, like in the Southern District of New York and these things you see on TV where, um, you know, first of all, you can be bankrupted. And second of all, not too many people go to jail, white collar crime, but it does happen if it's yeah. egregious, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Okay. But, uh, yeah. yeah. The, 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 disclosure. The, the, yeah. A, it's a really good piece of advice to everybody is disclose, disclose, disclose. And it's never too late to make new disclosure, right? As you to review yeah. that as time goes on and go, oh, I forgot about that. Because again, yeah. just because it's imperfect. A lot of law, doesn't matter where you are, is usually about being a good person. In, in, in the common law tradition, they call it like the clean hands doctrine, right? So even if you made a mistake, you tried to correct it, even if you, like you're just being a good person. And it looks for those things. When it comes to time to give a penalty, right? <laughs> it mm-hmm. looks at things like that. And it just yeah. says, you know what? This is why sometimes, you know, historically you'll see somebody yeah somebody just gets to walk out even though they actually did something wrong and it's because they demonstrated they had clean hands they tried to fix the problem they did all they were always trying to do the right thing it's just in the it's and it's something to bear in mind um as you navigate your way through uncertain legal landscapes not to be underhanded and to be uh forthcoming yeah yeah i've got a ton of more questions. Um, Go ahead. Well, give me one no, more okay. right now. <laughs> there's, there's just a lot of things. Like maybe we can, we can do two more things, right? Maybe we can do like this. What is there anything for investors? So so far we've only talked about builders. So all the people that are yeah. like, you know, responsible for that. But what about somebody who just like joins Bankless DAO, buys their token and hazard? Is there anything these guys have to think about? Like have to worry about? Is there anything there? Like. Yeah, so in the bankless example, which I know well, uh, so you buy tokens to buy a membership. It requires 35,000 tokens to get in, and exactly. then you're a member. So, so it's just a membership fee, just like at the golf club, the yacht club. It's a membership fee. Um, there's, it's, it's somewhat of a not-for-profit, basically, right? It's a media DAO with a mission to evangelize tools to bring it to the public, you know, to, to build tools, onboarding tools, and to write newsletters and media and posts to educate people on, you know, on, on, on the crypto ecosystem. So uh, I would say that that falls on the spectrum of securities. Do you need to know something? Not very much, because there's no real 
I don't want to say that, I mean, the token goes up and down. It's been to 12 cents, two cents, six cents. It goes up and down. It has nothing to do with, it's just the way the market works and what the liquidity is. And um, because there is a secondary market to trade it. Um, Bankless DAO occurred with a free airdrop, right? So nobody actually bought the tokens originally. And so again, how your, your organization comes into existence Mm-hmm. To some extent, will can define uh, what its legal status may be, or its token, um, you know, characteristics. Does it attract certain, you know, legal aspects or not? And um, you know, without pronouncing it on definitively, I just say that there's a spectrum, and it's at the uh, it's at the less worrisome end because that's yeah. what it does. Yeah. Um, the, and again, this also goes to the practicality and the operation operational part of the law, which is, do you go after uh, small fish or do you go after big fish that actually break the law? Right? So where are they going to put their resources? And, um, you know, it'd be different if Bankless was uh, putting out like anti-government um, <laughs> attacks on very specific people. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you might find that it, 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 it attracts the attention of the wrong people you don't want. And they'll try and figure out a way to, to make it a, a security, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, as part of it is what are you doing? What's your output? And then uh, what are the promises you're making anybody? When you join Banklist, there's no promise that you're talking, you know, it's a membership. So yeah, yeah. Uh, people get paid or, or get get rewarded in bank tokens and you can end up with hundreds of thousands of them, uh, no doubt. Um, but that just helps you vote to direct where the assets and resources of the group will go with more yeah. influence. So um, maybe, maybe not, you know, um, there's certainly financial protocols out there that are, 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 are more interesting and, and dicey about you know because you know they they one for one um you know have a like perpetual option you know on something on something doesn't really matter what it is it's a perpetual option it's a derivative contract derivatives are actually the word derivative is actually spelt out in the securities act right in almost every country so what most people may not know is that in the act in the regulations there's like a long enumerated list, any loan, any, you know, any derivative contract, specifically all the things that exist in law. And then it says, or an investment contract, or oh, any yeah, contract yeah. for the investment of money. And yeah. it's this Howey test that the investment contract uh, only comes at the, it's like a catch-all that just says, just because these, all these items that exist in banking credit, that already exist, letters of credit, all these things already exist and they have very specific legal meaning. And then an, an investment contract is a bit of a catch-all that says, then there could be more than these items and uh, we'll call it an investment contract. And then, so the test is really, are you an investment contract if you're not one of these things? But on a protocol that just has a derivative, right? derivative has a meaning in law, Right, and so it's a secondary investment contract on an underlying asset. Uh, so if you, so that's definitely, you know, uh, falling within there. But even then, you don't see regulators around the world tripping over themselves to run after protocols that have derivatives. So I always like to rely on like what are the facts and and try to. I don't pretend to know why. But I could tell you that uh, I'm, I'm active in the space and I don't see them run, you know, chasing down protocols that offer derivatives every single day, despite the fact that the word derivative appears in just about every act you know, through the Western world as definitively a regulated item, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, instrument, so. Yeah. Well, maybe, yeah, there's, the space is growing so quickly. I, I can imagine like the... the... The, the regulators are all struggling catching up with what's happening here, the rate of innovation, all that. So, yeah. So maybe to wrap it up, because I think we're at the top of the hour here. Um, yeah. Where can people 
learn more about this, can find more about this? Are there any good resources? Can they follow you? Do you, do you publish, write anything? Um, I, uh, myself, I don't publish anything. I wish I did. I have lots of great thought leadership pieces in my head and I never have time to write them, it seems. Um, and some of it's very counter, not counter position, but just, uh, I like to say it has an air of reality. It's this bit where I say, well, I don't see anybody attacking this. So yeah. I call that the air of reality test. Um, so I don't like publish <laughs> anything myself, but, but, but I am out there. I'm, I'm uh, rotorless, uh, telegram, rotorless, discord, rotorless, uh, hotmail, rotorless. So I'm kind of easy to find. We'll um, yeah. And um, the best resources uh, recently, I had someone from the world bank approach me and they asked me for the best resources to learn more. And I actually told them, like, to keep abreast, I just, I, I told them to uh, subscribe to two things, Forefront and, uh, and, uh, and the Bankless Newsletter. That's good. You know, if you subscribe, Forefront has those curated articles. They're so good. They yeah. search the, the whole web for you. They give you five, they're, they're, every single one of them is thought provoking. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and, you know, the Bankless Newsletter kind of has like, what's hot in the news this month, good, you yeah. know, and, yeah. and it's pretty good deep dives. And if, if, if you're just starting out and you want to understand the space and you want to understand the different things that are going on and different things that are being built and the different ways of thinking that are out there, if you just read those two things, you don't need to read the rest, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That's how I feel. Cool. That's great. We'll leave, we'll leave it with that. Um, appreciate you right for coming on. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, yeah. Anytime.